Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Revelation chapter 2, we're working our way through Revelation. We just started last week. Last week I did chapter 1 and also sort of an introduction uh, to the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It was written by John the Apostle, and at this point, John is an old man. He's been banished to the island of Patmos, and uh, if you can't relate to what Patmos is, it'd be kind of like an Alcatraz. Uh, it, Alcatraz, of course, now is a park. You know, you can go there and visit it, uh, but it used to be a prison, and the reason why, I mean, you get out there and there's, there's no escape, basically. You, you were on the, on the island. Well, Patmos was similar to um, Alcatraz in that sense. And we're told in chapter 1 that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard a voice behind him. And he turned to see who was talking to him. And the very first thing he sees is seven golden lampstands. And then he sees one, uh, he says, uh, like the Son of Man standing in the midst of the lampstands. And then he goes on in, cha- in verses 13 to 16 to describe uh, his, the appearance of the Son of Man. And John is told to write what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia, which is Asia Minor. It would be modern-day Turkey. The churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Why these particular churches? I uh, don't really know why Jesus took, uh, chose those churches, but it's interesting. These are seven churches, and Paul himself also wrote letters to seven churches. He wrote to the church in Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and Thessalonica. So why did Jesus choose to send letters to these particular churches? There's different theories. And if you want to look it up there, you probably find all kinds of different reasons. Um, I think it's probably representative of all the churches of John's day. uh, And that's why. And I think it's also representative of all churches down through all centuries, even to our day today. Now, an argument can be made uh, that each of these churches represents a chronological period in church history. I've done that study before, and it is an interesting study, how, uh, by the way. Um, but, you know, it's great if I wanted to share that with you and fill you with some, like, wow, that's some cool knowledge. You know, that's interesting. But um, I don't want to do that this morning. I think there's so much practical application of letters to these churches for us today that that's what I want to focus on this morning, what the Spirit wants to communicate to his church this morning. And so one thing I want to mention here before we move into chapter 2 is in chapter 1, and I don't know, maybe maybe the book of Revelation is like, you know, it's, maybe it's scary to you. It's like, man, I just don't know. It's so confusing and it, it's so hard to understand and there's so many things happening in so many different different times and these judgments and all this stuff. John, actually, Jesus has given us an outline of the book of Revelation in chapter 1. It's in verse 19. He tells John, write the things which you have seen, which is chapter 1, basically. It's the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. And then he's told, write the things which are. And that's what we're starting to look at this morning, the letters to the seven churches, which is chapters 2 and 3, representing the church age. And then he's told to write the things which will take place after this. After what? After the church age. After the things that are. And that's uh, chapters 4 through 22. So we have an outline already that Jesus gives us for the book of Revelation. One of the things I do want to mention also, at the end of chapter 1, verse 20... John sees this vision of Jesus, and he sees him standing in the midst of these these golden lampstands, seven lampstands, and he sees seven stars in the angel, excuse me, in the Son of Man's hands. And we're told there in verse 20 by Jesus, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, Last week I went in and I showed how number seven is just really prominent in, in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting that each of these letters to the seven churches can be broken down into seven sections as well. Uh, the first section of each of these letters is a salutation, an address to a particular church. Then the next section is a particular revelation of Jesus to each church. Then after that, 
Jesus explains his knowledge of their situation. Jesus knows what's going on in each church. And then he has a message, a unique message for each church. And then he has either a promise or a warning of his coming. It depends on if, it's a, if, if he's commending the church or if he has something against this church. It'll be either a promise or a warning of his coming. And then there'll be an admonition for the individual to hear what the Spirit says. And then finally, a promise to the individual overcomer. So you can kind of break down each of these letters. And it's not necessarily in that same you know, order that's kind of mixed around somewhat. But those are the seven categories that you can, you can see in those letters. So with all that, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So we're going to look at the church of Ephesus this morning. And it's interesting in the address, he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And there's a little bit of a, a discussion or a little bit of questions. Is this a, a, a literally an angel? Some people say, no, it's actually addressed to the past, pastor. Why would they say that? Well, because the, the word angel, it means messenger. And uh, so, you know, there's arguments for both sides of this. Uh, if it's an angel, or excuse me, if it's a, why, why would, why would uh, John or Jesus, I should say, not have said like elder to the elder or to the bishop or to the pastor? So it must be an angel. Other people say, uh, well, it must be a pastor because what angels would be held in, in Christ's right hand? Um, I'm sure my wife probably feels that it has to be an angel and not a pastor because she says, you know, you're no angel. And it's true, but I am a saint. So you got to remember that. So, all right. So, you know, I don't really know. But suffice it to say that it's a messenger or a representative of the church. But there's one thing I don't want you to misunderstand. Although it's addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, this is not a letter to the angel alone, whoever that is. It's to the church collectively and to the individuals in the church. So he says there, uh, in, in, uh, well, actually, back in uh, chapter 1, he says what you see right in, in a book, which is one book, right, the book of Revelation, and send it to the seven churches. So each of these churches, we're going to get all seven letters. So this is really, it was meant to, to impact all the churches and all the individuals within the churches. So what about the, the city of Ephesus? Well, it, it happened to be the capital city of Asia, it's in modern southwest Turkey. It was the largest city of Asia at that time. It was a political city and a seaport. Uh, it had a lot of commercial importance there. The Temple of Diana was there. And the church of Ephesus that was in this city was a privileged church. Why do I say that? Well, the Apostle Paul is the one that established the church in Ephesus, and he spent a great deal of time teaching in Ephesus. Not only that, but Priscilla and Aquila, who were his, his acquaintances and ministered alongside him, they also ministered in the church of Ephesus. Not only that, but Apollos, an eloquent, eloquent speaker, he was there ministering in Ephesus. Not only that, but Timothy, who was Paul's protege, was sent to Ephesus to minister there. And according to church history, John the Apostle himself ministered in Ephesus. So if you think of the church of Ephesus, man, they were well taught. They were well led. It was a very privileged church. 
And so Christ here reveals the knowledge of their spiritual condition there in verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. If he had stopped right there, that would be like, man, that's the church I want to go to. I mean, it's got the big name pastors. Man, they, they, they are excellent teachers. Theologically, man, they are right on the mark. Doctrinally, man, they, they've got it down. They have lots of programs, all kinds of ministries. They probably even have a real hip one name, you know, for their church, like, you know, Engaged or, or maybe uh, Fountain in the sense of being the fountain of all knowledge, right? Um, or missional, we're, we're the missional church. You know, this was the, this was the church to attend. It was faithful. The saints there were hardworking. They were persevering. And why was it that way? Well, Paul, when he was ministering uh, in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's already, he's already ministered at Ephesus. He's, he wants to minister or talk to the elders of Ephesus. So he has them meet them at a place called Miletus. And so he's speaking to them in Acts 20, verse 28. And he says this, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. Remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. The three years that Paul ministered there, he was warning them over and over and over again about false teachers and false... They they were well taught. John, who also taught at Ephesus, according to church history, says this in his letter, 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, you just don't take anyone's word that they're an apostle. You need to test them. And Jesus commends them for this. He says, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Paul also spoke to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor there in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 4, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some, other, uh, charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So they had all these teachers warning them and teaching them and telling them to be careful, and they were. They were, they remained faithful to the teachings and the charges of Paul, Timothy, and John. And Jesus here reveals himself, an aspect of himself, to the Ephesians there. He says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's holding the seven stars, the seven angels of those churches in his right hand. What, what does that mean? What is that picture? It means that he was, he was ruling over them. It was his church. They were in his hand. And not only that, but he held them fast. He wasn't going to let them go. And he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. You know what that reminds me of? It's in the Old Testament. In the temple, there was one golden lampstand in the, in the Old Testament. And the high priest's job was to go in there. That that was the only light in the tabernacle or in the temple later on when the temple was built. And so the high priest's job was to go in. His responsibility was to keep the wicks trimmed, to keep the oil filled in the lamp, and to make sure that the lamps were burning continually. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus, our faithful high priest, he's walking among the lampstands. He's walking on each of the churches and he's looking at them and and he's checking them. He he wants to make sure that the flame is burning bright. And so he sees, well, this church needs something. There's, I got to do something here. I got to address this here. And so that's what he says. He's, he sees something missing in the church of Ephesus. And so he gives them this message and it's in verse four. 
I mean, he's just been praising them and telling them all the great things about him. But he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. In other words, in spite of all your works, your labor, your patience, your discernment, man, the church today needs discernment. Believe me, we need discernment today. But despite of all that, your discernment, your perseverance, this one thing negates all of that. All that good stuff you've done, this negates it. Nevertheless, you've left your first love. That first love, the word is protos. And it can mean, it can mean first in, in, in time, but it also means first or foremost. And so I think this is what Jesus is saying. They've left their foremost love. Jesus in Mark 12, verse 30 to 31, said this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And then he goes on and says, And the second like it is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You know, some would argue that the love described here in verse 4 that it was missing in Ephesus is both the love of Jesus and the love of fellow man. They were just, they had become so orthodox that they became unloving. And it is true. A person can become so orthodox, so discerning that they become suspicious of anything and anyone. I think that's one of the dangers of discernment ministries, and I think there's a place for them. But I think there's a danger in that where you can become so critical that you end up becoming critical of everyone. Likewise, a person can work so hard in ministry that they lose sight of the whole purpose in ministry. If you were to ask them how, how is ministry going, they go, man, ministry is great, except for the people. If it wasn't for the people, man, I'd love ministry. They'd lose the focus. So, so it's true that, that that could possibly be, but I think it's more fundamental than that. I think it is our best and foremost love, the love for Jesus himself. Because I think all those other things fall into place if you have your love for Jesus and, and you know, if that's right in your heart. And notice in verse 4, there's a difference here. He says, you've left your first love. And there's a difference between losing your first love and leaving your first love. There's a big difference. If you lose something, that's accidental. You know, I spent a good portion of yesterday studying for this morning, and I normally try to do it ahead of time in the week. Friday, I got up early. I mean, I'm going to just, I'm going to barrel down and get my message done, and then I'll just kind of mull over it on Saturday. Well, Friday in the morning, I realized I lost my checkbook. And man, I tell you, I went everywhere looking for this checkbook. I went upstairs or downstairs under the bed. I went looking in nightstands. I'm like, where could I have possibly left it? I checked the house over two or three times. I drove here to the church. I thought maybe I left it here at the church. I'm looking back in the office so I can run. No, I don't see it here. Went back home. And then I'm panicking. So now I'm calling stores that I'm thinking, let's see, I went to Menards twice, both north and south, and I went to Costco or Sam's Club. So I'm calling them, and so I'm waiting. They're like, no, we didn't find any checkbook around here. So I'm like, man. And then at that point, my wife, she has been done. She was canning tomatoes, and she said, I'll help you. So she started looking around, and then she's like, why don't we go back to the church? Okay, I guess. We go back to the church, and I had been making a sign for Randy Stonehill. And on the, if you've seen it on the building, I was painting it in the back of the sanctuary here. And I had all this stuff out, and uh, I had already looked. And my wife, she opens up the bin that's got these paintbrushes, and there's my checkbook inside of there. And you know what I had said earlier in the day? I said, you know, I know I probably put it in some place where I'm clever, thinking I'm not going to, at least I won't lose it. I know it's here, you know, and I, I forgot. So. You younger people are probably like, man, that's really bizarre. But you older people, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And you, you get this clever idea. I'm going to put it here so I know I won't forget it. And then you forgot where you put it so you won't forget it. Well, anyways, if you lose something, it's accidental. To leave something, that's, that's deliberate. If you lose something, you don't know where to find it. I didn't know where to find that checkbook. But if you leave something, you know where to find it. And the Lord tells them how they can return to their first love. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember. Notice he says, remember from where you have fallen. I think that's interesting. I think it's significant. 
Because in another church, he'll say, remember how you received and heard. But here he says, remember where you have fallen. Where is a location or a place? What is that location or place? It's the place of fellowship and communion with Jesus. You've left that place. There's a reason why Jesus reveals himself to the church of Ephesus as the one walking in the midst of the lampstands. Because he's right there in the center. And you see, there was a time in the church of Ephesus where Christ was the center of the church. Everything was because of Jesus, because of their love of Jesus. He was central to their mission, to their ministry. But they had left that place. And so he says, remember from where you have fallen. So the very first thing is to remember. And then he says, repent and do the first works. What's repent? It's literally a change of heart and direction, to turn around from the direction you're going. And he says, do the first works. Well, wait a minute. I thought they were commended for all the works. What more works could they do? Well, he says the first works. And I think that's key. What's the first works? Again, it's the foremost works. For you and I, do you remember how you used to spend time just devouring the word of God? I mean, you couldn't get enough of it. You're just digging in and reading it and studying it. And just, it was just, that was your focus. You remember a time when you used to pray about everything, seeking the Lord. Man, he was the center of every decision you made. Remember the joy of getting together with other Christians and just talking about what the Lord's been doing in your life and stuff, just that fellowship and just encouraging one another. Do you remember that? That's the place of fellowship with Jesus. And so he tells them to remember from where they've fallen, to repent, to turn around and go back and do the first works. And now in this case, for this church, there's a warning of his coming. He says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But there in verse 6, he says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And notice that he says you hate the, the, uh, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, not the Nicolaitans, right? You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Listen, by the way, it's always good to hate what Jesus hates and love what Jesus loves. It's always good. It's, it's not good to have it the other way around. Here, uh, they, they were at least, he was commending them for this. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, I tell you what, if you get three commentaries, you'll get four opinions on this. It's, it's amazing. Um, so I've got this. I'll just read it to you. It's a sect springing, uh, according to credible tradition, from Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, one of the second deacon, uh, excuse me, one of the seven deacons of Jerusalem, who apostatized from the truth and became the founder of an antinomian Gnostic sect. I'm like, okay, what does antinomian mean? It's one who holds that under the gospel dispensation of grace, the moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary to salvation. You got that? No, I didn't either. Um, So (laughs) this is what it boils down to. I would call it cheap grace. Cheap grace. As long as you have your get into heaven free card, you can indulge the flesh. You can do whatever. You can live like the world. It's okay. And I think that's what they were teaching. Now, Dr. Henry Morris, he has this, and I, and I, and I thought that was kind of fascinating, fascinating. He says there was a Gnostic sect called the Nicolaitans, and they were bitter opponents of the Apostle John. However, he points out that they arose much later than the book of Revelation was written. So, interesting. Uh, But if you look at the name Nicolaitans, it's actually two words that are compounded. Nikael, which means to overcome, and Leso, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, means people. And what it really means is, the name means anyways, those who conquer the people. And what it could mean is those who claimed divine authority to be apostles. Remember the qualification of apostles. They had to have been with Jesus, saw him resurrected. They were physical witnesses. And then there were these other people claiming to be apostles and claiming to have divine authority as apostles. And they were false apostles. Paul and John and Timothy had warned against these people. And whoever they were, I'm not really sure, but they were leading people astray with their false 
teachings. And we're going to encounter them again in another letter to another church, the Church of Pergamos, another probably next week. So what's the admonition? It's interesting. It's the same admonition for each of the churches. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have ears here this morning, I pray that you're hearing what the Spirit says to the churches. And if you have two ears, it means you get to hear twice as much. You really got to listen, okay? Sometimes I have to remind myself when I'm talking with my wife, uh, you know, sometimes I'll interrupt her when she's talking. And, and, and I got to remember, I got two ears because the Lord wants me to hear twice as much than I speak. And so, anyways, all right. So then there's the promise to the over- overcomer. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What, what are they overcoming? What are they having victory over? Listen, these believers couldn't be fooled by Satan's false prophets. He tried, and they, they spotted them. They tested them. They knew they were false prophets. So they couldn't be fooled by Satan's uh, attack that way, but they could be distracted from the main thing. And that's, an, that's even more subtle, being distracted from the main thing, their love for Jesus. It's a danger that all of us are susceptible to. And so to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree of life, that's fascinating because in the book of Genesis, the tree of life, it kind of disappears from the scene after Adam and Eve sin, they're banished from the garden. They're, they're told to leave the garden, and, and, and there's an angel with a flaming sword that's guarding the way. And now it reappears here in heaven. Why, I always thought about this. Why, does, why, did, were the angel, why was the angel there preventing them from eating of the tree of, the, of, the, of the tree of life? And I, the only thing I can think of is, is, you know, they were in a fallen state now. And had they eaten in a fallen state, they would have been forever in that fallen state. So I think it was God was protecting them. My own, my opinion, I don't know. There might be other reasons. But now in heaven, in a glorified state, now they can eat once more freely of the tree of life. But I think that also speaks about something else. Because it wasn't just that they couldn't eat from the tree of life. They were banished from the garden. What was special about the garden? That was a place where Adam and Eve, before they sinned, in the cool of the evening, the Lord would meet them there. And they'd just walk and talk with Jesus. Just walk and talk with the, with the Lord God. And so they, they, sin caused that separation. And so they lost that, that beautiful fellowship. And so all of this that's being portrayed and spoken to the church of Ephesus was to remind the church of Ephesus, and I think you and I also, that beauty of intimate fellowship with the Lord. That's, guess what? He desires. He desires that fellowship with you. Listen, the Lord told Jeremiah to go prophesy to the Israelites there in in Judah. And they had turned their back on the Lord for decades, for decades, for centuries. And in Jeremiah 2.2, he tells Jeremiah, he says, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. The Lord remembers that first love that you had for him, and he desires that fellowship with him. Listen, the first step towards restoration of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He's the guy that, you know, he wanted his inheritance, and and before his father passed away, he wanted that inheritance. He got it, and he went, and he just spent it, you know, on wine, women, and song, basically. I mean, he just lived the life, basically, until he was flat broke and all his friends left him. And then he was, he was basically took a job working, no offense, working on a hog farm feeding pigs. I say that because there's a guy that works here, works on one. But uh, so he's there. He's about as low as he can get. And as he's there, he starts remembering what life was like back at his father's house. That's the first step. Remember from where you've fallen. And then the second step, remember repenting. And doing the first works. And so the second, first thing, the prodigal son, he remembered what life was like back at his father's house. And then he returned. He turned around and went back to his father. That's what you and I can do this morning. If you've left your first love, just remember that place and turn around. In fact, we'll have people in the back. You can pray with them. They'll be, they'd love to pray with you for that specific purpose. 
So let's move on here. Verse 8. Now we're just looking at the next church. And by the way, when the prodigal returned, you know, he didn't have to knock on the door. The father was just there waiting for him. In fact, he was out there watching, just waiting for him, and just welcomed them back. No questions asked, just took them back. That's the same what the Lord wants to do with each one of us. So verse 8, church of Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What about Smyrna? We don't know. I don't know a whole lot about Smyrna. I looked it up. It's a port city. It it was a port city, excuse me. It was about 35 miles north of Ephesus, and it is a city that's surviving today. It's the city of Izmir in Turkey. This was a commercial city. There were a lot of temples there, temples of Zeus, of Cybele, which is also known as Diana. Aphrodite's temple was there, the temple to Apollo, and uh, Asa. Calupus, which I guess they get the word scalpel as some kind of a medical deity or something. Uh, the city, or the name Smyrna, it actually means myrrh, which is kind of interesting uh, because myrrh is one of the burial spices that's associated with suffering. And the church of Smyrna was a suffering church. They were persecuted. In fact, one of their bishops, who was a pupil of John by the name of Polycarp, was martyred there in 155 A.D. He was 86 years old. And so Christ's knowledge of their spiritual condition here, verse 9, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. You know, not only were they a persecuted church, but they were a poor church. They were in poverty. And probably what was happening was they, their, their properties and, and, their, and their wealth and everything is probably getting confiscated during those persecutions. But Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. You're rich. See, they were materially poor, but they were spiritually rich. They were rich toward God. They were storing up treasures in heaven. Now, we'll contrast that later with the church of Laodicea who they say, man, I am rich, I'm wealthy, I don't need anything. And and Jesus' word to them is, you don't know how poor you are. And you're blind and naked and wretched. But these guys were spiritually rich. And he says, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Those who say they are Jews and are not. Who are they? Well, I think, Paul maybe gives us a clue in Romans 2, verse 28 through 29. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So these Jewish people, the Jews in Smyrna, they were known for their hatred of the Christians in Smyrna. In fact, when Polycarp was martyred for his faith, he was going to be burned at the stake. The Jews brought logs for the fire to burn him. That's how much hatred they had for the Christians there. Well, what's Christ's message there? Verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation 10 days. His word to them, don't fear what's going to happen to you. Now, if the Lord said that to me, my right away I'd start fearing. I'm like, what do you mean? What's going to happen to me? I mean, I'd be, I'd be freaking out, right? Uh, can you imagine being told that? Well, what am I about to suffer? Well, he, he explains to them. He says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, what's interesting, is that a a 10 literal days? We don't really know uh, if it's not 
uh, if it's not liter if it's literal or not literal, um, is if it's not literal, is ten significant? Now, last thing last week I shared something with with those that were here, and and I think sometimes people they get a little overwhelmed with the Book of Revelation because there's so many symbols in Revelation. And some symbols in Revelation, they don't need any explanation. They're just kind of self-explanatory. Some symbols in Revelation are immediately explained or in the context of what you're reading. It's like, oh, I know, what they're, well, I know what's going on here. For example, in chapter 1, Jesus said, hey, you remember you saw the stars and the seven lampstands? The stars are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the seven churches. It's explained. We don't have to go, well, I think this is what the seven lampstands are. No, we're told there. Some other symbols in the book of Revelation are explained, maybe not necessarily in the book of Revelation itself, but in the context of scriptures as a whole. For example, in chapter 12, there's this, there's this vision or this image of this woman and a male child. And if you, we just finished going through the book of Genesis, and uh, we, came to the, we came to an understanding, uh, at least I believe so, that the woman and the male child, uh, the woman is the picture of the nation of Israel, and the male child is Jesus, the Messiah. So some things are explained in the context of Scripture. Well, the 10 days here, we're not explained, or we're not told what it is. It's not self-explanatory, unless you just take it literally and go, they literally 10 days, possible. We don't really know. But if you dig around in the Bible, you'll come across, and I did this, I was looking, where is 10 days mentioned in the Bible? And uh, came across this, which I thought was pretty cool. Actually, Dr. Henry Morris kind of helped me with that, but, but I came to it. Daniel chapter 1. I don't want you to think that I'm a real smart guy. I'm not. Um, Daniel chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. But in Daniel 1, the king of Babylon instructs his eunuch uh, to choose young men who are among the Jewish captives and to prepare them for three years to serve in the king's palace. And part of that preparation is he's going to feed them with the food of Babylon, and, and he's going to give them the wine from the king's table to drink. And he's, he's basically going to, they're going to get them culturized, but, you know, Babylonians basically, going to turn them into Babylonians so that they can minister in the, uh, in the palace before the king of Babylon. And there are, among those young men that are chosen, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are chosen among those, those, those young men. And in Daniel chapter 1, it says, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's delicacies or wine. And so he goes to the eunuch and he says, hey, um, I, was it okay with you if we just eat vegetables, me and my buddies, we just eat vegetables and drink water? And the eunuch's like, you know what? The king's going to have my head if I do that because you guys are going to look, you know, you're going to look emaciated. You're, gonna, you're not going to be fattened up. You're not going to look good. And, and so Daniel says, you know, just give us 10 days. Test us for 10 days. And if at the end of 10 days, man, we look, we look gaunt and frail and, and sickly, then we'll go on your diet. We'll, we'll, we'll do what you guys want. But, but if not, can you just let us stay like that? And so the eunuch agrees. And at the end of 10 days, these guys, they look better than the other guys that were whining and dining on the, on the, on the food of Babylon. Listen, those 10 days was a time of testing for Daniel. And it was probably a difficult time. I've fasted before. I haven't done this, what they call the Daniel fast, but I've, it's difficult. But those 10 days of testing produced a lifetime of serving the Lord in the king's palace there. Daniel was given a place of prominence. He was able to minister in ways just that are, that are just it's fascinating when you look in, into the impact that he had there. So I think the point of the 10 days, again, I don't know if it's literal. I, I, I can't give you, this is definitely what it is. But I think the point of the 10 days is that it is temporary. It's not going to last forever. And it's a time of testing. You might say, well, well, well that, I don't like testing. Well, it, it's not testing in a bad thing. It, it's not in a bad way. Listen, if you were an inventor and you came up with some product and, uh, you know, you poured your heart out. It was your brainstorm, your idea. You got a patent for it, and you, you poured your heart into it. It had your signature on it. I mean, it was your design, your ideas. You poured everything into this invention, and then you wanted to market it. Maybe someone to manufacture it, or maybe you already had manufacturing. You want to sell it to some people. You want to distribute it or whatever. Well, 
you could tell and walk up to people and go, this is my invention. And man, I tell you, this thing is like, it's better than sliced bread. You know, it's, a, it's the best thing that's go- going. And they'd say, well, yeah, that's fine. You can, you can say that, but how, how can you prove it? You say, well, I'll tell you what. Let's run it through some tests. I'll show you what it can do. Now, the invention, the, the, the thing that's invented, they're going through this test. They're probably like, what are you doing to me? You know, I'm going through the fire. I'm, going, I'm being, you know, thrown around and all this stuff. Remember the Samsonite commercials where the, the orangutan would be jumping on the suitcases and stuff? Be like that. You know, what are you doing to me? You know, but the person who created it, the inventor, he knows what he can handle. And it's going to prove, it's going to show his glory. I mean, look at my design. It's holding up. And I think that's the picture of this testing. We always look at testing as a negative thing, and, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes the Lord, it's, it's an opportunity for the Lord to show his glory through us. You know, it's interesting. Of course, we know that there are seven letters to seven churches. Two of the seven churches, Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. And uh, I know a lot of times... I myself, I'm praying, you know, I've been going through Revelation, praying. I'm like, Lord, I pray that our church, Calvary Chapel, Rochester, is the church of Philadelphia. Because you have nothing negative to say. It's all positive. I mean, I pray that we're the church. And we all want to identify with Philadelphia. But Jesus had nothing negative to say about Smyrna. But guess what? Nobody wants to identify with Smyrna. Lord, I want to be the church of Smyrna. I want to be persecuted and have all my goods taken away. Nobody wants to identify with the church of Smyrna except Jesus. And I think that's why he reveals himself to them as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Because you see, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer, to be persecuted, to even die. But the good news is he rose again from the dead. And so in this case, it's a promise of his coming. It's not a warning. It's a promise of his coming. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then his admonition, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then his promise to the overcomer, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You know, we've been so blessed in the United States here, and I, and I know in my own life, I've never had to suffer persecution. I mean, sometimes like somebody laughed at me, you know, and I feel like I'm really being persecuted or I didn't get that job or whatever because they know I'm a Christian or something like that. But there are believers all over the world that are, I mean, that's like nothing. I mean, they are losing their lives. They're losing their families, their, their livelihoods. They're losing everything for the sake of Christ. And some of those believers, they suffer all their lives, all their lives as believers. And, and many of them are going to die. It's not a, it's in the sense of our world, it's not a temporary thing. It's like an ongoing thing, and they're going to die. But you see, in the light of eternity, whatever we go through, man, it's just temporary in the light of eternity. I mean, I look, I'm not that old, okay? You might think I look old because I'm 50, sorry, I'm gray here, but I'm only 55. Now, for some of you younger people, like, wow, he's that old. But the rest of us, like, okay, he's, a, he's just a kid. You know, I just thinking back to when my kids were little and stuff, and it just seems like yesterday. And man, it's like, where did those days go? Where did those years go? It's just gone by so quick. And whatever we're going through, maybe you're going through a difficult trial right now or a tribulation. Listen, in the light of eternity, this is just a blip on the radar screen. It's just a, and it's gone in light of eternity. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. When we get to Revelation 20 and 21, we're going to find out, we're going to be told exactly what the second death is. It's the lake of fire. It's eternal separation from Christ forever. And I like what somebody said. I don't remember who, but I I got it here and pasted it in here. If you're only born once, you're going to die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. And if the rapture occurs, you don't have to die at all. So we pray for that. Right? All right. Listen, the Lord's word to those that are persecuted, to those who are, are going through trials and tribulations, is don't fear. He's in control. The Lord's in control. And in light of eternity, it really is only a short while. Not only that, but it's producing something. The Lord's working something in your life that, you know, you would never acquire any other way. 
You would never quiet. You know, maybe it's patience, or maybe it's you know a prayer life or something. You, sometimes that's the only way that the Lord will will allow that, or He works that in our lives through those things. I want to close with this passage from First Peter one, verses three through nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having, uh, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word this morning, your word to the church of Ephesus and your word to the church of Smyrna. And Lord, I pray that we who are here today, who have ears to hear, that we would hear what your spirit is speaking to each one of us. Lord, I pray for those individuals here who maybe have left their first love, And Lord, your spirit is just nudging them and and just urging them to return to that place of love, that foremost love where you're the center of their lives. Forgive us, Lord, for departing from that. Lord, we haven't lost love. Lord, you're there. We just need to return, repent and return to you. And we do that this morning. And Lord, for those believers here who are going through a difficult time, Lord, we don't want to minimize the trial because trials are tough. Trials are hard. They bring lots of pain and, and, and tears. But Lord God, I thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit that we don't need to fear. And Lord, that, that we know that this is not forever, Lord, that this is temporary. And that Lord God, one day in the light of eternity, we'll look back and it'll be as nothing in the light of of just seeing you and your glory. And Lord, I thank you that even through those trials and circumstances that we go through, Lord, that you're doing a work in us, Lord. You just don't have us endure it to make it through the other end. But Lord, you do a work through us in the trial and you're there with us, Lord, just as you were in the fire with Daniel uh, with Meshach, uh, with those guys in Book of Daniel, Lord, in the fiery furnace, Lord, you were there with them in the midst of the fire. And Lord, I thank you that you are with us in the midst of our trials and tribulations. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's suffering this morning, Lord, that they might be encouraged to not fear and to keep their eyes focused on you. We thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people. In Jesus' name, amen.
so many heroes that never came through. Too many roads going nowhere, nowhere, and Jesus was whispering, "I." With a love that makes all things new, He makes all things new, all things new. So I'm packing up my old clothes with my old and foolish ways. They just don't seem to fit me anymore. I can see the light of morning through different eyes today, and I'm giving my tomorrows to the Lord. Yes, I'm giving my tomorrows to. 